First of all, let me add my welcome to the welcome you've already received. If you're here visiting with us, uh, high school juniors and seniors, we welcome you along with your parents, those parents who are here. It's great to have you. This is a, a marvelous place, and you're going to get a great taste of it uh, in the hours of today and the t- uh, tonight and tomorrow and as long as you're able to stay and be with us. But I want to share with you just a few things about what education is, is all about here at the Master's College. I was recently reading a survey from the University of Virginia, actually a couple of years ago it first came out. They surveyed all their graduates, and they have thousands of them, obviously. It's a large, large university. And the graduates hold positions in very diverse fields. They're involved in government. They're involved in uh, social services. They're involved in sciences. They're involved in uh, politics. They're involved in advertising, education, computer technology, medicine, publishing, uh, just the, the wide range of things. And they asked them what type of education they would choose if they had to do it all over again. If they, having been out in the world now for some number of years, could go back and redo their education, what would they do? Ninety-one percent of them said they would take a liberal arts degree. Now what that means is that instead of focusing on job training or on some technical field, they would get the widest possible exposure to history, literature, the sciences, uh, theology, whatever it might be, so that they could have the broadest and widest foundational kind of education. Uh, Not too many uh, years ago, I was flying out of Boston after having preached there, and I sat down next to a a guy who uh, was obviously a a well-to-do man. He he was well-dressed and and kind of a refined-looking guy. And I struck up a conversation with him on the plane, and I asked him what he did, and he was a a professor at Harvard. And he had a Ph.D. in some facet of science, and he was teaching there in something related to computer technology. And so I was asking him about his degree in his education and the process of all of that, and I told him I was the president of the Master's College, and we were talking about education. And I said, if you had to go back over your education, what would you change? He said, I would go back to my college level, and I would... I would forego the technical training I took there and I would take a liberal arts degree. I really feel like I've been cheated out of the broad understanding and comprehension of the world around me. Now, I've mentioned before, too, that 85% of college graduates work in a field other than their major. This isn't really job training. This is life training. This is exposing you to the widest possible range of things that can educate you and make you a whole person. It can, and, of course, in a, in a biblical context, the foundations are so solid because it's all built on revealed truth. The University of Virginia then went on to discuss with these same students that they surveyed, and they asked them what were the key skills that they felt they needed to get out of their education. They're now out in the workplace. They're out in the world. They're in all the various fields. What are the most important skills that they need. One, they said, skill number one was communication skill. The ability to communicate effectively. Number two, well, and and let me say another word about number one. They said it is the ability to inform and persuade. And that's really what effective communication does. It informs and persuades. Secondly, they said interpersonal skills. They found themselves immediately 
in a network of people with all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, all kinds of needs, the obvious problems of uh, teamwork, of uh, being involved in, a super, in some kind of a, a structure, some kind of a, an organizational plan. They had to respond to people above them, below them, and alongside of them, interpersonal skills, the ability to interact with people, they said, on a meaningful level and learn how to work effectively alongside other people and to come to common values. Thirdly, critical thinking skills. They said the ability to analyze, to reason, to correlate information, and to come up with the truth and with what solves the problems. And there you have it. And that really is the issue in education. Will you learn to communicate? Will you learn to relate? And will you learn to solve problems, to think clearly? Those are without questions the key things that a liberal arts education strives to provide. And, of course, apart from the Word of God, it's questionable whether those things can ever really fulfill their intention. Because if you're going to communicate, you want to communicate truth. And obviously, there are a lot of people in the world communicating, but they don't know the truth. If you want to interrelate, you want to interrelate on a basic foundation of values and morals. And that, of course, comes from the Word of God. And if you want to think critically and carefully analyze and solve problems, you need to know the mind of God because the Lord in His Word has given us all we need to deal with the issues of life. Let me just talk about those things with you for just a few moments. Let's, let's start with the last one, the ability to reason. The ability to reason. To think analytically, to think critically, to make clear conclusions based on evidence. The ability to solve problems. This is absolutely crucial. I've said this through the years, and I've had the privilege of being involved in a lot of leadership responsibility. Um, we probably have here at the college uh, well over 200 people who are employed here. At Grace Community Church, we have 150 full-time employees and another 30, 40 part-time employees. At Grace to You, which is our media ministry, there's another 75 employees. Uh, that's, that's almost 500 people that are involved in the ministries with which I am associated. And then there's the seminary and all of their faculty and their people. The budgets of those organizations probably is around $25 million every year that flows through, a tremendous amount of responsibility. And when people say to me, what kind of people do you look for to hire? What kind of people do you look for in those organizations? The first thing I say is people who solve problems. Nothing is more frightening to someone in leadership than to have people who just bring him problems. And so we've, through the years, said to our people, don't bring me a problem, bring me a solution. I already have enough problems and not enough time to solve any more. Bring me a solution. And I'm telling you, the world turns on the people who solve the problems. I mean, we're watching that right now, right in the government of the United States, which is paralyzed and this, at this particular point, at an impasse, which seems like an insoluble problem, somebody needs to rise to the occasion. You see it in warfare. Why do we all know about uh, Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell? Because in the crisis moment, in the crisis moment, with lives on the line, with national security at question, and whole nations in the balance, those people know how to solve problems. Learning how to think critically, think carefully, think analytically is absolutely crucial. And frankly... It kind of runs against the grain of the culture in which we live because the culture in which we live is not cognitive. It's not so concerned about the mind. It's much more concerned about the emotions. We're concerned about being entertained. Part of the problem, of course, is that the church has also fallen into this mentality. We, uh, 
we have become victimized with this entertainment sort of panic in our society, and, and it's sad because it, it terribly limits the church. Most of everything we are exposed to in our culture is entertainment-oriented. Even if you take the news, most of the news media is nothing more than entertainment. As I've said, it's nothing but a bunch of talking hairdos reading the scroll that runs along in front of the camera and just making sure nothing is very deep at all. Neil Postman, who's a communications professor at uh, Columbia University in New York, wrote an uh, important little book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And uh, we need to understand what that book has to say because it really, it really does identify our culture. He's writing from, uh, he's at New York University, I'm sorry, not Columbia. Uh, he's writing from the standpoint of a communications PhD, a communications professor, a secular academician. But his whole book is about how we have an unthinking culture because it's been nurtured on entertainment and not thought. We don't read books, we watch pictures. Books lend to thinking, pictures lend to feeling. Postman points out that prior to television, society relied on printed media for most of its information. People had to be literate. They had to know how to read and write. And now, as you know, the literacy curve in America has started down. It was going up for many years. Now it's starting down because of the entertainment mentality in our culture. No longer is reading necessary. Watching will suffice for many people to pick up whatever they need to pick up. But they need to be able to read, they need to be able to write, to think logically, Postman says, to digest information meaningfully, to engage their minds in rational processes, and the content of any form of communication takes priority over the form in a print culture. In other words, when you're in a print culture where the mass form of communication, the most dominant form, is print, you think. Because words on a page, and I have a page right here with words on it, lend themselves to analysis, synthesis, Evaluation, meditation, thought, because they freeze right on that page, the concept. Television doesn't freeze anything. It just moves inexorably, unendingly right past you, and you, nothing stops long enough to think very deeply at all. Postman says, we have left the age of thinking, and we've entered the age of feeling. Uh, we've left the age, he calls it, of exposition. And he uses the illustration of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. When Lincoln and Douglas were vying for the uh, presidential nomination from their party, they had a seven-hour debate. Can you imagine two candidates having a seven-hour debate on socioeconomic political theory in front of people who stood there and listened to the whole seven hours? Today, when it comes down to politics, it's little tiny sound bites on TV, nothing very profound, and certainly people aren't going to listen to a seven-hour discussion. But it was a different time. People thought. People listened. In fact, uh, Postman points out that they stood in the open air in sweltering heat without the benefit of a microphone. Thousands of people stood and listened for hours, carefully following the logic of the debaters, listening intently to profound dialogue and hanging on every word. He then looks at Jonathan Edwards, who was uh, probably the most profound theological mind in American history. Jonathan Edwards uh, preached long sermons, which he read, and he read them in a, in a kind of a monotone like this so no one would ever think that he was trying to convince them by his rhetoric or by his uh, emotion. He read them rather pedantically, almost like a computer-synthesized voice, so that people would only respond to the truth of what he said. Compare that with modern-day TV preachers who are screaming and jumping and bouncing off the walls to try to keep people's attention and have little or nothing to say. And if, if you thought, you would turn them off. Television has done more to define the show business age 
We tend to think of television as advancing knowledge, but it doesn't advance knowledge. In fact, a number of years ago, Robinson, who's a professor of English at Stanford, wrote a very uh, helpful, helpful article called TV Can't Educate. I never forget reading it in the little brown reader, which is, is for co- collegiate English, and it comes out uh, every year. And in this article, he said, television cannot educate. And the reason it can't educate is because it's not a cognitive medium. It doesn't allow you to freeze anything, stop, think about it, analyze it. That is the kind of society we live in. We do have skilled speakers. We do have skilled writers. And they have taken control of the media for the purposes of corruption. Television has not made us more literate. It has flooded us with illicit impulses, with irrelevant trivia and mindless perspectives. And we are not expected to respond rationally. We are not expected to think rationally. And consequently, we have a tragic situation in our culture. People don't think, they just emote. Television has lowered our attention span. In fact, one of the cable networks, I found out, has a program called Short Attention Span Theater. And on every network, all the programming is designed for minimum intellectual involvement. Most television dramas, uh, I'm told, are written so as not to exceed the intellectual capacity of the average seven-year-old. Amazing. Amazing. So we're in a time when we don't have a culture that knows how to think. They just, they don't want to think. They just want to feel. We need to turn that around. And one of the things we want to do in this educational experience, one of the things you need to get out of your college is the ability to think carefully. So that means to read. That means to read. In fact, Robinson, who wrote the article, TV Can't Educate, said this very simply. There's only one way to learn, and that's to read. That's to read. It's the only medium that freezes a reality and leaves it in front of your eyes so that you can enter a cognitive process in response to it. So we speak to reason. We speak to the mind. Uh, We speak to the cognitive process. We want you to think and to think carefully. The future, I really believe, of our culture, the future of our society, the future of our world, and the future of our church is dependent on people's ability to think. I have written a book uh, called uh, Reckless Faith, When the Church Loses Its Will to Discern. And the, the basic heartbeat of that book is that even the church has fallen victim to the culture and the church can't discern either. The church is in an identity crisis, doesn't know who it is, doesn't know what it believes, doesn't know what to believe, flip-flops all over the place because it can't think. All it wants to do is feel. And so the new kind of Christianity is you fall on the floor and laugh uncontrollably. Or you fall on the floor and roar like a lion or bark like a dog. And they tell us that's the work of God. That's the movement of the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely mindless. It is contentless and it is utterly meaningless And it is sub-Christian mysticism has nothing to do with the Scripture, nothing to do with God, and nothing to do with the Bible. But we live in that kind of world. And sadly, we've got to raise up a generation of people who can think. And the question is, I suppose, in the end, can you really think at all if you don't, first of all, think about the Word of God, right? This is the foundation of everything. I mean, for example, if you start out with an evolutionary premise, then everything is wrong from then on. Everything. If you start out with God, and He is the sovereign creator, everything follows in the right path. Scripture becomes the foundation for all of it. Absolutely all of it. 
Secular education really cannot do the job. You have to ask the question, is it education? Is it really education? Because the foundation isn't there. The basis of truth isn't there. There's no standard there. There's no bottom line. And consequently, there's nothing to build on. So in secular education, there's really no hope. But in Christian liberal arts education, we believe with the foundation of the Word of God, we can teach you how to think carefully. And that's exactly what God requires of us. Everything works through the mind. We are to have a renewed mind, it says in Romans 12, 2. We are to have a renewed mind. Colossians says the same thing, a renewed mind. The mind is the issue. And you need to learn how to think, and that's what we want to do in this liberal arts program. Secondly, just talking briefly about the idea of communication, working back through those three things. The ability to communicate simply comes down to writing and speaking. It comes down to being able to persuade and inform through writing and speaking. It's just that simple. I didn't have any idea when I came out of college. In fact, you know, I had no idea what my life would be like. I basically went through school, uh, you know, doing okay in my schoolwork, but I was involved in athletics. I was involved in student government. I was involved in, uh, in some ministry stuff. And, and, you know, academics were sort of down the line a little bit from the other involvements, and I could, I could get by and, and do fine, but I really didn't think about my life in the future. I wasn't planning for my future. I was so, I was so totally absorbed in the present and just expected the future to sort of unfold. But the last thing I ever thought I'd do was write a book. And frankly, I didn't know whether I'd ever communicate. I, I, I certainly was involved in speech and I was involved in the school play and, and all that stuff. I, I, you know, there was something theatrical in me, but, I, but that was when I was quoting something somebody else wrote, you know. I never thought that I would be a person who spent his whole life sharing ideas on the printed page and through radio and tapes. I had absolutely no concept of that. Um, I, the least I ever thought was I would write a 35 to 40 volume New Testament commentary, each volume being an average of about 400 pages. That's a huge thing. I've been involved 15 years in it, and I'll be 15 more years in it. I didn't know I'd spend 25 years of my life writing a commentary series or writing books or, or preaching like I do or making tapes. But I look back on my education and I thank God that I learned how to think, first of all, analytically and critically in a Christian environment, in a Christian college, and that I learned how to write when I was a seminary student. I remember my first book. I wrote my first book and I took it to an editor. I thought I really had it pretty wired. This is back in the 70s. And I took it to a really good editor. And uh, he kept asking me as he read it. I sat across from him across the table. And I said, just read it to me and react. And he kept saying, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by this? What do you mean by this? And I realized after a little while that it wasn't clear what I was saying in this book, which isn't good. And then he would respond. I would say, well, what I mean is this. And he'd say, well, why didn't you say that? I don't know. That's what I tried to say. Well, he didn't say it. Well, a whole day of that was probably the greatest lesson in writing, just fine-tuning that I ever had. Not trying to be flowery, not trying to be prosaic, not trying to be clever, just saying exactly what I meant. That lesson, along with a lot of other lessons, taught me how to communicate on the printed page. And, and when you can communicate, you have the world at your feet in so many, many ways. So many ways. I was telling the parents earlier, it's sad, really sad, but let me just give you a statistic. 
The Master Seminary is a graduate-level program that is very, very challenging, very challenging academically and spiritually. Um, in fact, we've had, medical, we've had medical doctors in our student body. We, we, we seem to, to draw men who have been in the medical profession, want to go into the ministry, and they come there. And all of them have said to me that it's more difficult than med school. Very, very challenging. It demands a, a high level of capability and devotion and dedication. not impossible. It just takes work. So we when, we, when we admit students, take students that we feel can do that level of work. Listen to this. 75 or 80% of them come from universities across America. The others come from the master's college or, or maybe another Christian school. 75% of them come from universities. Listen, one out of four of those university graduates coming to the seminary, which means they're high-level students, one out of four can pass the basic English exam. One out of four. Now, how are you going to write? How are you going to communicate if you don't know your language? That's quite a barrier. And we have to give them a basic English exam because they cannot learn Greek and they cannot learn Hebrew if they don't understand the technical features of language. Effective speech moves the world. It always has. It always will. And effective writing does the same. So I have nothing but extreme pity for the Reverend William Archibald Spooner. Have you ever heard of him? William Archibald Spooner suffered from a disability that no preacher really deserves. Spooner was a brilliant man. His biographer says he was the dean of New College at Oxford in England at the turn of the century. Today he is chiefly remembered because he elevated slips of the tongue to an art form. He was, you heard of a Spoonerism? He was particularly prone to one variety of verbal blunder, and that variety of verbal blunder has become known as a Spoonerism, and he did it all the time. A Spoonerism is when you transpose the syllables or sounds of two or more words, like you say, let me sew you to your sheet. Sort of a backward eloquence, and his was unsurpassed. Reprimanding a wayward student on one occasion, he uttered these immortal words, you have hissed all my mystery lectures. I saw you fight a liar on the college grounds. In fact, you have tasted the whole worm. Wasted the whole term, but he said it backward. In fact, he called Queen Victoria our queer old dean. It is said that one time... One time he was conducting a wedding, and right at the appropriate moment, he said, it is kistomary to cuss the bride. <laughs> on another time, he was preaching on Psalm 23, and he said, the Lord is a shoving leopard. <laughs> well, so much for old Archibald. And I can tell you that Skill of communication, skill of speech, skill of, of writing is not generally developed at secular schools. Classes are very large. You don't get the kind of personal attention. You don't write a lot of papers because they don't want to grade a lot of papers. They don't want to listen to you speak, and they don't want to read your stuff. So everything is uh, simplified, computerized, and quick answers and all of that kind of stuff. And one of the things that happens in a school like this is you get some individual attention in those development areas. Georgetown Publishing House, connected with Georgetown University, recently has published a very important service. The editor of it is a man named Aram Bakshian. 
It's quite an interesting thing. It's designed for very successful leaders. This is what it says. The difference between success and failure, writes Aram Bakshian in this remarkable new resource for public speakers, the difference between success and failure is the ability to communicate clearly and effectively. Never has this been more true than in today's intensely competitive business climate. And that's absolutely right. And he works with companies like Coca-Cola, IBM, etc., etc., etc. And no communicator wants to mangle the message if you're trying to inform or persuade. And so learning how to do that is very, very important. You know, we remember Charles Spurgeon, for example. You don't know what the future holds for you. Think of it this way. Charles Spurgeon was the most listened-to preacher in the 19th century in history. If you add all the people who heard him in his life, he would have been the most listened-to preacher ever, and certainly in the 19th century. And today, Chuck Swindoll is heard by more people probably in a day than Spurgeon was heard by in a lifetime. Tremendous, tremendous potential. Just tremendous. Satellite technology, digital sound, high-resolution stuff. It's just a wide world for those who can communicate, and we're after that. Well, just a final thought, and I'll uh, wrap this up with some other brief thoughts. Um, The ability to relate. I don't want to give myself away here. Um, The ability to relate. And then this gets down to where my heart really is, and I'm sure you know this. I'm I'm concerned about communication. I'm concerned about the ability to articulate. I'm concerned about the ability to think and reason and solve problems and all of that. And I'm concerned that all of that be foundational, built upon the Word of God, biblical literacy, the grasp of doctrine, sound doctrine, understanding in divine things, you know, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished to all good works. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, does, does babes desire the pure milk that you may grow? The, the word is the foundation of everything, absolutely everything. Psalm 19 is so crucial in that. Uh, it's that the word of God, the law of the Lord is comprehensive, able to totally transform the whole person. Psalm 119 exalts the Word of God. Psalm 138.2, the Lord has exalted His Word above His name. And obviously, that's the heartbeat around here. Everything is built on the Word of God. Everything. Absolutely everything. And you have to ask the question of whether you can ever really solve problems and really communicate the life-changing message unless it's built upon the Word of God. And, of course, the answer is no. But the last point uh, of those three that the Virginia University people brought up was the ability to relate interpersonal skills interpersonal skills. And this just, this just opens up a, a, just an almost unending potential of discussion. You look at the world today and ask yourself, are we good at interpersonal skills? Are we getting along with each other? Not hardly. Not hardly and not anywhere. And here we are in the 20th century, and all of us are at the point where we, we, may, even, we may even anticipate that we could have a civil war in the United States of America because racial tensions have reached such massive proportions. Here we are in Europe, and we watch the death of communism, and in its place comes a kind of nationalism where people are just massacring each other. Marriages, we've had more talk, more discussion, more uh, uh, things on marriage than ever in my lifetime, and we've got more problems, and nothing seems to be changing, and nothing seems to be different. 
Lyndon Johnson came in in the 60s to bring the great society. He brought in the war on poverty. We have more poverty now than we've ever had. He brought in sex education in the schools to try to bring a halt to some of the problems that uh, promiscuous sex causes. We have more of it than we've ever had. We have done everything we could from that society on to, to take care of people who uh, have less than we do, take care of minority people, and they are more hostile and more aggressive and more angry than they've ever been. It's because all that stuff is absolutely superficial. Because there's no moral base. There's no moral base. You saw it in the, in the courtrooms. You watched the O.J. Simpson trial, and the issue was never, ever, we are really struggling to know the truth. The issue was always, we've got to win this deal. Always. Morality is subsumed under everything else. People really don't care what other people um, have, don't have. They're very into their own lives, their own fulfillment. Obviously, our society is in some profound trouble. Uh, we don't seek for truth and justice now. Everything seems to be refer rep reparations or let's take care of the poor victims. I mean, there are all kinds of other agendas because there's no moral base. There's no moral foundation. And people know that. That's why a guy like Bill Bennett writes a thing called the Book of Virtues, which is the same stuff you'd find in any, any sermon illustration book. Just a bunch of illustrations, little stories, and people go nuts over the thing and buy millions of them grasping for virtue. Then he follows it up with another book full of more little sermon illustrations and little uh, stories and legends and stuff like that. And they aren't biblical and they're just kind of nice little thoughts about what's right or what's not right. And people just grab millions more grasping for some basis of morality because you can't have interpersonal relationships unless you have a moral foundation. Here we are in this environment, and we know what the moral foundation is. The code is right here. We can tell people how to get along in a marriage, how to get along in a family, how to get along in a friendship, how to get along in society. It's all in the Word of God. We are told how we are to behave in a pagan society. We are told how we are to treat the unbelievers, how we are to treat those in authority over us, how we are to treat the police as servants of the Lord. Romans 13 makes that clear. We are told how we are to pray for those who are over us so that they might be saved. We are told that we are not to strike against them, we are not to rebel against them, we are not to have an insurrection against them or a riot or whatever in Titus chapter 3. We are told to live godly lives, peaceable lives. I mean, all the stuff that makes up Social order is in the Scripture. Everything that is key to, to interpersonal skills is in the Scripture. If you remove the Scripture, you can't have it. It's just absolutely hopeless. And uh, you're living, it's an amazing thing to think about, I guess, in some sense. You're living in a time when the biblical base, the Christian base of America, has disappeared. Prior to this generation, we were propped up by at least a biblical code of ethics which used to be called the Judeo-Christian Code of Ethics. It's gone. It's history. Now there is no standard. There is no code. There is no moral base. And to try to have meaningful interpersonal relationships is absolutely impossible. Now we spend all of our time suing each other for harassment, for uh, sexual misconduct, um, for all of these kinds of things that you read about uh, going on in the office. Some woman feels that she's, uh, she's being... Uh, treated as a sexual object by a man, and now men are even suing women for treating them that way, and nobody knows really how to treat anybody. You, you could walk up to a woman in the office and say, my, you look lovely today, and in a week get slapped with a lawsuit. It's absolutely true. Nobody, nobody is, is sure what the rules are because there's no foundation. Our society is in the profoundest trouble it's ever been in since this nation was founded. 
the, the president, can you imagine, I don't know if you've been reading about this, this late abortion. Uh, I don't want to get too graphic, but you understand what happens. They actually pull the baby out of the womb, and when the head comes out, they put a needle into the head and suck the brain out of the baby. And the president of the United States wants to make sure that the right to do that is maintained. It's absolutely unbelievable. That's where our society is. There's, there's no rules. And this is a man who says he's a Baptist and a Christian. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything, really, apparently, in regard to that. So you are living in a very, very, very important time. If you want to be a part of the solution, this is the kind of environment where you can develop what it takes to be a part of the solution. Just jumping in the system and floating along in the system isn't going to be the answer. It just creates more confusion. I think this is a day when God has raised up Christian education. I thank the Lord that He raised up this college. Ten years ago when we didn't know what the future of this college was going to be and began to pray, we had no idea that the Lord would take this college and bring it where it is today and bring in 25 or $26 million in donations to, to buy property, build dorms, buy houses, retrofit every building on the campus, make the student body what it is today, develop uh, all the programs that are here. We had no idea God has, had this in mind, but now as we come to this time, I really feel this is a time like Esther's time when we've come to the kingdom just specifically for the needs of the hour. If you want to make a difference in the world, this is the kind of place where you train to make a difference in the world and not get caught up in what it is. We do something very unique here because it's all built on the foundation of the Word of God. We know what we believe. We're not having an identity crisis. We know what we stand for. We know what our doctrine is. We know what we want to accomplish. And liberal arts education in a Christian environment can give you the widest exposure to truth Build on the Word of God and prepare you for the greatest impact in the future. And if I know anything about college kids, I mean, if I can think back to when I was one. When I went away to college, I didn't want to blend into the gray. You know, I didn't want to just, just fold into everything else. I wanted to make a difference in the world. I wanted my life to count. I wanted to, see, I wanted to be an agent of change. I wanted God to use me to, to do something different, to, to stem the tide of something, to have an impact. And I, I wanted to be prepared to do that. And it wasn't that I was thinking, oh, I just want to make money and I, you know, I want to buy a car and I want to live in a house. I mean, that wasn't it. I mean, I wanted to make a difference in the world. I wanted my life to count somehow. I didn't know what it would be, but I wanted to be prepared and trained to do that. That's the kind of person that brings the most to this education. You, you recognize the dilemma. You recognize the, the tragedy. You recognize the condition of our times. And you want to make a difference. You want to make a, a change. You want to be somebody that God can use in all kinds of fields, who's not in an identity crisis, who knows the truth, who can build on the truth, who can solve problems, think clearly, communicate, and build strong interpersonal relationships. And those are the things that change the world.